CBS presents For Our Times. Today, Healers of the Dead Sea, with CBS News correspondent Douglas Edwards. In the decades since the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1947, scholars have gradually uncovered details of a time not unlike our own. Roman-occupied Palestine was a focal point for many influences. Roman, Greek, Jewish, Egyptian, and Oriental beliefs and customs converged in that part of the world, sometimes enriching, sometimes confronting each other. Some Jewish groups, like the Zealots, fought to be free of Roman domination. Other Jews, such as Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes, sought answers in strict religious observances. The Essenes retreated to a desert settlement at Qumran, near the Dead Sea, remaining there until the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 A.D. Around the same time, Gentile and Jewish members of a sect led by Jesus of Nazareth were creating a stir preaching throughout the region. Their healing miracles were a dramatic element of early Christianity. Dead Sea Scrolls scholars from several countries have slowly shed light on events of this era. Many points of view, both secular and religious, have emerged from interpretation of Dead Sea Scroll materials. Today, For Our Times presents a program featuring the work of one scholar, John Allegro, a member of the original team of scroll researchers. He's published several books on his findings, some of them quite controversial. In recent works, he proposes that there may have been some relationship between healing practices of the Essenes and healing miracles in early Christianity. We journeyed to the Dead Sea area of the Israeli-occupied West Bank to let Professor Allegro tell his version of events in Roman-occupied Palestine nearly 2,000 years ago. art and practice of healing was always of great importance for Christianity. The New Testament full of it. Why were the Christians so interested in healing? What are its roots? Ah, that's what we come here to find out. We are on the old track that ran from Jerusalem to Jericho. You know, the way of the Good Samaritan. And it runs by the old monastery of St. George down down, down into the Rift Valley, down ooh, three and a half thousand feet from Jerusalem, two thousand feet above sea level, to Jericho, nearly a thousand feet below. And we've got to go even further down to find out. This place has attracted the poet and prophet for hundreds of years to seek their God. It's what the Bible calls the wilderness of Judah. And our way takes us down below Jericho's lush vegetation, even deeper into the Rift Valley. The Dead Sea steams and stagnates at the bottom of the ditch. Its surface is 1,300 feet below normal sea level, and you can't get lower than that anywhere on the surface of this planet. It's always been a place of awesome mystery, a scene of desolation. The Dead Sea itself is so salty that no fish can live in it, hence the name. 
that it was here in this desolation by this sea of death that some pious Jews came to live 2,000 years ago. They made their center this settlement over there. It had once been an old Judean fortress, but they converted it into their headquarters, the center of their own religious sect. Why here in this unlikely spot? Well, partly because they wanted to reenact the experience of their forefathers, the ancient Israelites, who had camped near Jericho. Then Joshua, Moses' right-hand man, had led them on to claim the promised land. So it was that these latter-day Israelites renewed their vows and awaited the coming of another Joshua to lead them into another kingdom, the kingdom of God. But that Joshua would be the Messiah, or Christ. The people of their time referred to these desert exiles as Essenes, probably representing the Aramaic physicians or healers. Now we'd heard of these Essene physicians by repute. Uh, the ancient historians speak of them in glowing terms. They were ascetics, they had strict dietary laws, and some of them were celibate. We're told they wore white robes and were meticulous in matters of personal hygiene, which they neatly wouldn't They had a strong internal discipline, too, and, and that little room there with the benches may well have been in the council chamber where their twelve judges sat in judgment over them. They studied the scriptures day and night, for they were people of book, and that long room is where many of their books or scrolls were probably written. People outside their closed order also regarded them with a good deal of awe. They believed the Essenes knew the names of the angels that guarded the seven heavens. That gave them access through those celestial domains so that their souls could migrate towards heaven, almost at will. By just what agents they separated soul from body, we don't know, but we can guess at some of them. But such knowledge and practices were among the Essenes' most closely guarded secrets and would never have been written down, only passed by word of mouth under terrible vows of silence between full initiates. As physicians, they also had knowledge of and access to therapeutic herbs and drugs. So says the historian Josephus, writing in the first century, they show an extraordinary interest in the writings, singling out those in particular that make for the welfare of soul and body. With their help, in order to treat diseases, they investigate medicinal herbs and the properties of minerals. Linked with this power of healing was the occult practice of looking into the future. There are some among them who profess to tell the future, being versed from their earliest years in holy books, various forms of purifications, and the sayings of the prophets. And seldom, if ever, do they predict wrong day. So the Essenes were a mysterious people, 
reputed to have powers of the body and the soul. It seemed to outsiders that they had access to sources of secret wisdom not open to ordinary people. And that, I think, was another reason why they come to live down here in the Rift Valley. There was a very old idea that once, long ago, there had been a rebellion in heaven, and that certain God's angels had been cast down and imprisoned in the deepest recesses of the earth, here, in fact, in the Rift Valley. There they were condemned to roast in hell fire until Judgment Day. Those rebellious angels have brought with them divine secrets, too powerful to be entrusted to orphan Among these secrets were the arts of cosmetics, by which wicked womankind could make themselves even more attractive to innocent men and seduce them from the paths of righteousness. Of rather more interest for the celibate essence were the arts of healing and the preparation of herbal remedies. It followed that the closer you were to such recipients of divine wisdom, the more powerful the works of healing you could perform in God's name. The hot springs that bubble out of the ground around the coasts of the Dead Sea seemed to the ancients proof of how close they were to hellfire. On the other hand, the hot waters were known to have some therapeutic value. Herod the Great sought some relief for his mortal ills from spas near the Dead Sea. And modern visitors do the same, though that king's pains were probably more richly deserved. The Essene physicians refer to themselves as the men of the New Covenant, or New Testament. And some aspects of their teachings and their communal lives, as we learn from the ancient historians, is remarkably reminiscent of the men of the New Testament of the Bible, that is, the Christians. So the question now has to be asked, what is the relationship between the Essenes and the Christians? Could the religion of the Essenes have formed a kind of missing link between Christianity and normative Judaism? Could Jesus of Nazareth have been conversant with the ways of the Essenes? After all, we know that the Essenes existed in lay communities all over Palestine. Or could John the Baptist have been missing? He was working only a few miles away in the uh, Jordan River, baptizing people near Jericho. See, what we've always wanted is first-hand evidence, writing from the Essenes' own hands. The kind of books, in fact, that might have been written by the Essene scribes in this very room, the Monastery Scriptorium. With quills dipped into this inkwell, found in the rubble, and resting their sheets of parchment or papyrus on this writing bench. From until 1947, no one believed we'd ever find such records. On the whole, fragile materials like parchments and papyri can't survive for hundreds and thousands of years in such a comparatively damp climate as Palestine has. At least, so the experts said. It took an Arab shepherd lad and his goat to prove them wrong. 
In that year, he made one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of all time. It was all quite accidental, of course, but then most of the really big archaeological discoveries have usually started out that way. Marmots go to straight from the flock up this steep path. The shepherd started after it, calling, throwing stones. The wretched animal carried on climbing. And about here, the lad gave up the chase and squatted down in what shape he could find. Then that hole in the cliff-face opposite grabbed his attention. It looked somehow unusual. He climbed up to look inside. To his astonishment, he saw tall jars ranged along the walls. They were covered with bowl-like lids. He brought out ancient scrolls wrapped about in foul-smelling linen cloths. They were part of the long-lost library of the Essenes. In those writings were the roots of Christian healing, and much more besides. Their first discovery was to be followed by several more in the caves roundabout, and now we have the remains, mostly in small worm-eaten fragments, mind you, of some 400 different documents from the Essene library. First-hand evidence at last. The Essenes Bible, of course, was the Old Testament, as it was for the first Christians, also Jews. We now know that the Essene Library contained nearly all the books of the Old Testament, as well as copies of many other works that never made it into the accepted canon. Even more interesting, they had writings of their own, and most of them we've never seen before. These included a manual of discipline, regulating the life and order of this tightly knit little... Some of the regulations are very similar to those laid down for the first Christian communities. Their doctrine of the two ways mirrors exactly an early Christian manual called the Didache, or the teachings of the Twelve Apostles. Some scholars have even found echoes of the Sermon of the Mount in ancient writings. The Essenes were quietists themselves, but they had an order of battle. They expected to see that one day there would be a great apocalyptic war between the forces of darkness, led by the devil, and the sons of light, themselves of course, under the banner of the Prince of Light, the expected Messiah of Christ, the Anointed One. But when would that happen? Aha, that was the great question, and it still is for some people. The Essenes believed that the answer lay in the Bible, if they could interpret it properly. They thought they could, having themselves the gift of divine inspiration, like that which prompted the first writers of the Word of God. I suppose we call the Essenes extreme fundamentalists. They have their counterparts in most religions which base their teachings on a received body of writings. Anyway, the Essenes thought that by their expositions of the biblical prophets, they could determine their own place on the cosmic timescale, the run-up to the end of the world. And there was plenty of evidence from reports that filtered through to this little community in the wilderness that this dreadful time was not long to be delayed. Up in Caesarea, in the north of Palestine, Jewish rebels, the so-called zealots, 
strong-armed cousins religiously to the Essenes, had thrown down the gauntlet to the hated Roman occupying forces. Sheer madness, of course. But weren't the angels and the Messiah himself going to come in on their side and usher in his kingdom with a magnificent victory? The Essenes war manual said so. The New Testament also speaks of wars and rumors of wars that must precede the coming of the kingdom and the start of the millennium, that thousand years of peace when all nature will be renewed and transformed. All corruption, including sickness, even death itself, would be swept away. The deserts would blossom as the rose, and natural aggressiveness would disappear. Isaiah 11, 6 the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel has a splendid vision in connection with this glorious day. A stream of life-giving water would flow from beneath the temple mount. It would grow into a mighty torrent, rush down into the Kidron Valley outside the walls. The Mount of Olives would split in two and open a way for the life-giving stream. Even the barren waters of the Dead Sea would not be able to resist the stream's miraculous powers of healing. Ezekiel 47b these waters issue out towards the east country region, and go down into the desert, and go into the sea, which, being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. And it shall come to pass, that everything that liveth, which moveth, whithersoever the river shall come, shall live. And there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed. And everything shall live, whither the river cometh. And it shall come to pass that the fishers shall stand upon it from Engedi even unto Enedlaim. They shall be a place to spread forth nets. Their fish shall be according to their kinds, as the fish of the great sea, exceeding many. Well, this is probably Ezekiel's Enigline, called today Ein Feshka. It's only a few miles south from the Essene settlement, and the brothers would have used its precious water in their plantations nearby. There they would have grown their food, for they liked to be as self-sufficient as possible. But there also they would have grown their healing herbs. In that way, at least they realized the prophet's vision of the trees whose leaves would be for medicines. But the Dead Sea remained then as now very dead, with no fish. Well, this is Capernaum, and that may or may not be Simon Peter's house. Well, whether that ever was Peter's house or not, of course, we never know. But what we do know now, thanks to the Dead Sea Scrolls, is that the role assigned by the New Testament to Peter 
is almost precisely 0.5 points that given to the SE overseer or guardian, the Hebrew name of which exactly corresponds to the uh, Greek episkopos, bishop. So there's a good route. No, but we can go further than that. The SE guardian as an administrator, he's a teacher, he's a bursar, he looks after the money bags. This is all laid down for Sir Peter. But Peter's nickname, as it seems to be, Cephas, that I think we can now explain for the first time, thanks to a new document found from the SE caves. Like Jesus himself, Peter was a healer. Healing was not just a matter of herbs and poultices, or even physical manipulation laying on of hands. It had a strong spiritual aspect. It involved the minds and souls of both healer and patient. There had to be free communication between them at the deepest level. And that's why in the New Testament the healer, be it Jesus, Peter, or Paul, is said to have looked intently at the afflicted person and to have required his full attention in return. The healer had the faculty of inner perception. It enabled him to recognize the identity of the possessing demon, and thus assume power over it to exorcise it. You remember that Jesus discovered the name of the evil spirit controlling the demoniac. It was legion. He could then send it packing into the gathering swine. And once communication was established with the patient, the healer could impress upon him or her his spiritual authority. He could assure the subject that his sins had been forgiven, and so relieve the stress of guilt. Thy sins are forgiven me. Take up thy bed and walk. Both Essenes and Christians call that loosing the bonds. We can now see that this power of inner perception resided in the Cephas, which is, I believe, just another form of the type of Caiaphas, which in turn takes us back to the Dead Sea's caves. I recently deciphered a most interesting piece of parchment from the Essene caves. It seems to me to be a kind of report of uh, the local clinic of what appears to have been an Essene hospice. And it is addressed to somebody called the Caiaphas, who seems to be a kind of medical superintendent, an account of his rounds among the afflicted. And it details what's wrong with these poor chaps. Uh, swellings and distensions of the body and ulcers and all the rest of the horrific uh, things that could happen to anybody there, and some of the herbs that they used. But it's the name Caiaphas which is particularly interesting to me. It seems to me somebody, more than just a medical, somebody with a power of inner perception. In the story of Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, a Caiaphas examiner stood alongside the high priest. Now, his job was to exercise that power of inner perception to determine the qualifications of pretenders to the office of Christ Messiah. Simon Peter, the Caiaphas, Caiaphas, exercised the same perception when he could confidently proclaim Jesus the Christ, Son of the living God. 
As political and social tensions mounted, the question of how to recognize the Christ Messiah became more urgent. We're told that messianic pretenders came and went, drawing crowds under their banners into the desert, only to suffer dreadful retribution from the Roman security forces. The biblical prophecy suggested that his birth would be heralded by the appearance of a, a, a wonderful constellation in the heavens. Remember the story of the wise men from the east in the in the, uh, the Bible story of the birth in Bethlehem? Ah, but the Essenes could go further than that. They were into astrology. They had a scroll in code in which were detailed the physical and spiritual characteristics of people born under certain signs of the zodiac. So, according to the length of your fingers or the tapering nature of your thighs and so on and so forth, they could tell how good you were going to be and how bad. But of course, most important of all, they believed they could tell what the Christ Messiah was going to look like physically, by his appearance, as well as his spiritual characteristics. John the Baptist had a similar problem with recognition. As the divinely appointed herald of the Christ, he must be able to know him when he saw him. He sent messengers to Jesus. Are you the one who is to come or looking for another? Ah, now Jesus' reply was significant for our study. Luke 7, 22. Go your way. Tell John what things ye have seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. Ah, that was the essential sign to be sought. The Christ Messiah would come healing. In other words, healing was an essential part of the Christ's mission. The healing miracles were crucial signs that the millennium was about to happen. The kingdom of God was about to dawn. And the Essenes here were preeminently physicians, anticipating the arrival of the Christ. And so we've reached the roots of the Christian emphasis upon healing, and they run right down into Essenism. We discovered that Christian healing was an essential part of the church's witness from the beginning. It wasn't the mere expression of human compassion, but an integral part of the church's mission from the very start. Thank <laughs> you.